knew that that was going to end so badly? <laughs> well, the 90s sitcom Home Improvement, any Home Improvement fans here, but any, any old people, basically. <laughs> Uh, Home Improvement, uh, starring Tim Allen, tells the story of a family man, also named Tim, who stars in a Home Improvement television show called Tool Time. It's like a show within a show. Each show features a tool demonstration segment in which Tim brings out a new product to demonstrate. Tim's assistant, Al, usually participates in the demonstration, and the demonstrations invariably go the same way. Al does it right, and Tim, who is both overconfident and accident-prone, which is a terrible combination, by the way. <laughs> Overconfidence and accident proneness. He does it wrong. Not only does Tim do it wrong, he does it disastrously wrong, uh, making big messes that, uh, on the set that oftentimes involve injuries to guests. The consequences of building something the wrong way can be disastrous. Uh, Jesus seems to recognize this. In one of his more well-known parables, he tells a story of two builders constructing houses. One of them builds the house the right way, and one of them builds the house the wrong way. The well-built home becomes a place of safety and security and respite for the people living in it, even uh, when raging storms are outside. The house built the wrong way becomes a disaster for its occupants. Jesus tells the story not as a lesson on home building, but as a lesson on life building. As you know, Jesus was a storyteller. Jesus told us stories to teach important things about life and faith, and we call these stories parables, which we're studying in our current series here at Rooftops called True Story, Life-Changing Truths from the Parables of Jesus. And this morning, I want to look at one of Jesus' more well-known stories. It's the parable of the wise and the foolish builder. It has a lot to teach us about how to build a life that lasts. So let me go ahead and share the story with you from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, it's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Rain came down, streams rose, winds blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Rain came down, streams rose, winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. If you've been around church at all in your life, you've probably heard the story, the parable of the two builders. It's a short story, more of just a word picture. It doesn't have a lot of character development or plot development. Uh, in fact, scholars refer to this short type of parable as a syncrasis. A syncrasis is actually a comparison of opposites. And that's what Jesus is doing here in the story. He's comparing opposites. He's comparing two builders of two houses. One is wise and one is foolish. Jesus does not give them names, but to keep them straight, we're going to go ahead and call the first builder Wise Al. Wise Al built his house on the rock or solid ground. In the ancient world, this meant digging, picking uh, a hole in solid ground, then laying down a foundation of at least a, a layer, a couple layers of stone, and then building the house on top of it. Uh, with this sort of solid base, the house would be much better protected from bad weather. 
As Jesus describes, the rain came down, streams rose, winds blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Now, just so you know, Jesus' audience would have actually really understood the importance of building houses like this. Uh, the Middle East, where Jesus lived and taught, uh, did get a lot of bad weather. You, you might think in your brain, you might think of, of Palestine as just a hot, arid, dry, boring climate, but Palestine could be rather tempestuous. Uh, Palestine actually gets as much rain over the course of a year as London does. Uh, but in London, the rain is spread out over 200 days. In Palestine, it's spread out over like 50 days. So those 50 days of rain, you get a lot of rain in a very short amount of time. Builders knew this. They had to prepare for lots of flash floods that could crop up very quickly. They had to be very intelligent in how they built their homes to withstand those floods. They had to make sure, among many things, the foundations were secure. Wise Al did that. But then, Jesus describes another man. We'll call him... Stupid Tim. Stupid Tim does not build his house on solid rock. Jesus says that he built his house on sand. Now that just sounds dumb, right? To build a house on sand is to build a house with no foundation. It is to not care to find solid ground on which to build your home. It is just to build a house on whatever solid earth lays at your feet. I actually suspect, I don't know this for certain, but I suspect that Jesus is actually being funny here. How do we know? Because most people know not to do this. Even if builders do actually build buildings with no solid foundation, most people know that's dumb. People in Jesus' audience would almost certainly be laughing at the image of a stupid Tim erecting a house with nothing underneath it. To do so is to invite disaster. I mean, imagine walking through a housing development, seeing construction workers all around you erecting nice big homes with no foundation underneath them. You would know something is not right here. You might even laugh and gawk and point. You might even scream out at them, I think you're forgetting something. Even when we go down to Mexico, which we go down to Mexico twice a year to build homes down there in a very impoverished border town, Reynosa. If you're interested in going with us, we will gladly help you get there. Uh, it's an affordable trip. It's an important trip. We go down to spring break. We're going down again. But even when we go down to Mexico, everybody knows the first thing you do that first day is lay the foundation. Make sure the, the, the cinder blocks are solid, the rocks are solid, the concrete pad is poured. This city, this, this uh, uh, colonia, this little town is right on the banks of the Rio Grande, which floods frequently and has been known to carry off houses. Uh, now, even if you're on a foundation, sometimes it carries off your house, but if you're on a foundation, it's a lot less likely that your house will float away. Uh, sure enough, the house built by Foolish Tim doesn't survive the storm that is to come, as Jesus describes. The rain came down, streams rose, winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Of course, it did had no, had no foundation. That's the story of the two builders. Wise Al, stupid Tim. But what does it mean? Sometimes it can actually be kind of difficult to figure out why Jesus tells parables. Uh, Jesus can be a bit coy in his meaning, but every now and then he just kind of spells it out for us, which he does here. As he says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine puts them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. So, what's the parable about? The parable is about the importance of obeying the words of Jesus. That's what he says. Anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Uh, the ESV, the English Standard Version of the, of the Bible, translates it a little bit more literally. It says, the, anyone who hears these words of mine and does them. 
The two houses here are metaphors for how two different types of people respond to the teachings of Jesus. Both Al and Tim hear Jesus' words. They're both in church. They hear the same sermon. They might have even been like sitting next to each other, Al and Tim. But while Al goes away and like does something with what he just heard, Tim doesn't. And that's what Jesus is going for, obedience. The parable is about not just hearing the words of Jesus, but obeying them. It's not enough to hear Jesus' words. We have to do them. It makes no difference if we hear Jesus' words unless we're willing to do something about it. As the author of James says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. It's easy to deceive yourselves when you're in church, right? It's easy to deceive yourselves. Yeah, I'm in church. I'm listening to sermons. I'm reading my Bible. I must be spiritual. I must be religious. I must be a Christian. It's easy to deceive yourselves under those conditions. But Jesus is making it very plain here. It doesn't matter if you're hearing things unless you're doing something with them. Now, why is it important to obey the words of Jesus? Lots of reasons. We can't enjoy the blessings of living for God. I mean, there is great blessing in living for God, and we can't enjoy the blessing of living for God unless we are practically living for God. We cannot shine the light of Christ into a dark world unless we're living shiny lives. But at least according to the parable, one of the more important reasons to actually put into practice the words of Jesus is that unless we do, we might not survive the flood of God's wrath that's what Jesus is referring to when he talks about a flood and storm coming. The rains came down, streams rose, winds blew and beat against the house. There's actually a lot of debate among scholars about what that storm refers to. Is it a reference, for example, to the storms of life that we all have to face? We all face storms of life. Some of you are going through stormy seasons right now. Talk to you all the time. I know you are going through challenges, uh, mental illness, you're going through uh, challenges at work, maybe you lost your job, maybe you lost a loved one, maybe you got bad news from the doctor, maybe you're battling cancer, maybe you're getting divorced. Everybody goes through storms of life. Maybe Jesus is referring here to the storms of life that we all go through, and if that's true, then the the lesson of the parable is that you you found your life on Jesus Christ, you found your life on obedience to his word, and he's going to get you through those storms of life. If you live your life based on Jesus as your rock, you can get through anything anything. Now, I believe that. I do. God can get you through anything. But we can actually be very confident that that's not the storm that Jesus is referring to here. What's the storm Jesus is describing? It is the judgment of God at the end of time. You see, Jesus like to talk about the end of the world a lot. Far more than we're comfortable with, honestly. Jacob pointed this out last week. Jesus was a prophet. Jesus was an apocalyptic prophet. And he looked into the future. He saw the end of history culminating with the judgment of God against sin. We like to think of Jesus as a nice, pleasant preacher who told fun little stories. He wasn't. He told scary stories that would make you wet your pants. He is the annoying preacher on the street corner who screams that the end is near. We don't like listening to that guy. When I'm going downtown to go to Cardinals games with my family and I see those guys on the corner, I'm a Christian pastor. You know what I do? I go to the other side of the street. 
so I don't have to listen to those guys. Obviously, God's judgment, not something we like to think about. We don't like to think about God as a judge who will arrive to earth in a fit of violence to judge sin and punish sinners. Who wants to think about God like that? Besides which, many of us here aren't even sure that the earth needs to be judged, let alone by God. I mean, didn't God create the earth? Isn't this kind of all his responsibility, his mess? But anyone who reads the news reports knows that humanity is a deeply wicked species that has mastered the art of sin and violence by our own free will. With the crimes of war and slavery and sexual trafficking and racism and senseless violence and depression and environmental abuse, how can you not think that humanity needs judging for its crimes? But you don't even gotta look that far away to see the world's sin. Look in the mirror, right? Anyone who looks in the mirror truly and deeply knows the depth of wickedness that resides in the human heart. I'm as much of a problem to the earth as the next guy is. So are you. God has put up with our wickedness for a very long time. Eventually, he intends to come deal with things once and for all. He will come to earth. He will purge it of sin and restore it to what he was always intending it to be, a moral paradise filled with goodness and abundance, free of sin. But before we get to that, his judgment, his wrath, will come like a, according to Jesus, storm. And it will be a violent and terrifying affair. The book of Revelation in the New Testament actually describes God's judgment as a macabre bloodbath. Jesus, as the Son of God and a prophet at that, knows this. He knows that's the plan. So he comes to earth to warn us. He loves us too much to not warn us about the coming storm. I mean, if you knew, if after watching the, the, the weather, you knew that a storm system was heading the direction of where your loved ones live, what would you do? You would call them up. You would make sure they knew about it. This is what my mom does. Whenever there's like a line of a storm front, like moving towards Afton, she gets on the phone, she gives us a text, hey, just want to make sure you know about the tornadoes heading your direction. Go down to the basement, grab the radio, grab the batteries, grab the blankets, make sure you grab the chocolate chip cookies that I left for you. That's what Jesus is doing. Just making sure you've seen the weather report. God's judgment heading your way. He loves us too much to not let us know about the terrible storm heading our direction. Yeah, Jesus cares about helping us through the storms of life, but he's mostly concerned about preparing us for the storm of God's judgment. It will be terrible. It will make our battles with cancer, our battles with divorce, it will make them look like light drizzles. He comes from heaven to earth to help us get ready for the storm, capital S, storm. Now, how do we get ready? How do we prepare? Well, that's what the parable is about. We get ready by obeying his words, by being people who don't just hear, but do the words of Jesus. Obedience to Christ is the rock-solid foundation that will sustain us through the final wrath of God. Now, this raises a few questions, though questions that are important to the parable, how we might apply it. 
And with the time I have left, these are the questions I want to address. First, what words? Second, what about grace? Third, but how? What words? What about grace? And how? Let's start with the first question, what words? Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock, dot, 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 dot. So according to Jesus, the way we're gonna endure the storm of God's wrath is by putting into practice these words. What words? Right, if our future depends on our obedience to these words, tell me now, what words? Well, here I want to remind you of something very important that Jacob said last week. He talked about paying attention to the literary context of a parable. The literary context is what else is happening in the Bible around that passage. Context is very, very important to understanding something. And literary context matters a lot here in this case. This particular parable takes place at the end of Jesus' most famous sermon, Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus preaches this very important sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, and at the end he says, therefore, everyone who hears these words and puts them into practice. Now the Sermon on the Mount is a short sermon summarizing Jesus' ethical teachings. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about a lot of things. He talks about loving and praying for enemies. He talks about living lives of sexual purity. He talks about marriage and divorce. He talks about uh, not retaliating against people who mistreat us. He talks about not judging other people. He talks about not being anxious. He talks about living quiet lives of, of prayer and, and fasting and giving and generosity. The Sermon on the Mount has been studied and memorized and debated and parsed for 2,000 years, but needless to say, it describes a radical level of commitment to following Jesus that leaves no part of our lives untouched. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, which you should at some point during your Christian journey, you should read it you know, at least a handful of times, Matthew 5-7, through seven, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see that Jesus has things to say about every aspect of our lives, radical things too. I mean, the life that Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount is very different from the ones we live. Frankly, Jesus' expectations in the Sermon on the Mount seem so high, they seem so difficult, that after reading it, you start to wonder if it's even possible to do what Jesus has given us to do. I mean, here's just a tiny little snippet from the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus just kind of drops in there. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, be perfect. Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Just be perfect. Just do it. Go be perfect. Oh, and be perfect like God is. So be God perfect. Got it? Okay, go. What? How's that even possible? Which raises the next question. What about grace? We're Christians. We believe in grace. We believe that we're not going to be able to measure up to God's expectations, and then Jesus tells us to be perfect. What about grace? What about forgiveness? I mean, Jesus' simple point here in this story is that it's not enough to hear his words. We have to do them, and apparently perfectly so. Uh, being in church isn't enough. Listening to sermons, not enough. We can hear sermons, we can read the Bible, we can listen to God all we want, but if we don't do it, it doesn't matter. Jesus wants follow-through. Jesus wants action. Jesus would have been a big fan of Teddy Roosevelt. Just saw a documentary on Teddy Roosevelt a few months ago, and, and, and TR, uh, one of his life mantras was get action. I mean, Get out there and do something. Don't be the sort of person that at the end of your life 
thinks about all the things you wish you had done. Get action, go do them. TR like told himself that every day. Get action. Jesus told, or TR told that to his kids every day actually too. Get action, which is a weird thing to tell your children if you think about it. (laughs) Go get action, children. Get out there, get some action. I I think phrases change their meaning over time. (laughs) I think that maybe was what's happening here. The problem here though is what happens when we fail? We all fail, and badly. What if we try to, you know, get action in the morally upright sense of that, uh, to do the words of Jesus, but fail as we will? What about grace? What about forgiveness? And also, doesn't what Jesus say here kind of sort of contradict what the Bible says elsewhere? Like what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, not by action, so that no one can boast. So which is it? Do we withstand God's judgment by his grace or by doing the works of Jesus? Well, Christians have been wrangling over this one for thousands of years. Let me say a couple of quick comments. Uh, just so you know, I will solve the works faith conundrum once and for all this morning. You are here to see it, so mark the day. But first, Jesus is well aware of the fact that we are all sinners who need to be forgiven by God. Even the Sermon on the Mount includes an acknowledgement that we are sinners who depend on grace. As Jesus tells us to pray in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to us to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Jesus knows we're all a bunch of sinners. Jesus knows that we're not perfect. He knows that we will withstand the judgment of God only by his work on the cross. Jesus knew that he came to earth to offer his life as a ransom for our sin. He wants us to know that. He wants us to know that he knows that. But this is important. Jesus did not regard his sacrifice for our sin as an excuse to not live lives of obedience. He knew that would be our temptation. He knew that we would think, oh, well, now I've been forgiven for my sins, now I can live however I want. And Jesus is saying, no, your choices still matter. In fact, now that you are a son or a daughter of God, your choices matter more. How you construct your life now matters more. I've forgiven you for your sins if you believe, but I still want you to live radical lives of love and courage and holiness. It's like how any loving father or mother regards their children. I mean, I know my kids are going to screw up. I see them screw up every day. I've told them, hey, kids, I forgive you. I did forgive you. I currently forgive you. I will forgive you for your sins. But I do want to see you trying hard. But that can be hard. It can be hard to obey Jesus. Which leads to the third question, but how? How do we do this? The words of Christ are difficult, like very, very difficult. I mean, he tells us, Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, we shouldn't lust after anybody, after anybody we're not married to. He tells us that if someone mistreats us, we shouldn't even resist that. Jesus tells us, this is, honestly, this is the thing that I read in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm like, what, how? Jesus tells us, don't even be angry with people. He says, Okay, don't murder people. Let's all agree. Don't murder people, right? Don't call people names. You know, don't do that either. But here, don't be angry. In fact, just be perfect. (laughs) Just be perfect. (laughs) How? 
These are hard teachings, and the stakes are apparently high. According to Jesus, obedience to these teachings are the foundation stones that will save our houses from the flood of God's wrath. We are weak-willed, frail people who have been sinning our entire lives. How is it even possible for us to do what Jesus is giving us to do? Well, quickly, two things come to mind. Lots of patience and lots of help. How do we put into practice the words of Jesus? Lots of patience, lots of help. Starting with patience. God doesn't expect you to be formed in the image of his son overnight. God is not an American who expects instant overnight success from us. Holiness doesn't happen in a microwave. It takes time. God is the ancient of days. He is remarkably patient with his children. We should be as patient with us as God is with us. When I meet with people to talk about their problems, I actually try to remind this them of this. I try to remind them that they are battling patterns of personal dysfunction that took decades to form. It's going to take as long, if not longer, it could take as long or not longer for those patterns of dysfunction to unform as it took for them to form. We've got to be patient with ourselves. Nor does God expect people to be conformed to holiness by themselves. Sanctification, the process of being made holy, it's a team effort. It's a, it's a group activity. We need each other. We need the prayers of other people. We need accountability from other people. We need the church. We need their grace. And we certainly need the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the ultimate other. We're not going to get anywhere without the power of the Holy Spirit. Just like you can't build a house by yourself overnight, you can't become the sort of person who follows Jesus by yourself overnight. You need time. You need others. Which brings up a couple application questions that I think are worth asking ourselves. First, am I giving myself time to learn to obey Jesus? Am I in this for the long haul? Or am I just having a religious phase right now? Growing into the likeness of Jesus Christ requires a lifetime of discipleship. It's not going to happen during a religious phase. Am I giving myself enough time to be formed in the image of Christ? And also, am I getting the help I need? Am I surrounding myself with good people who can help me build my life as I help them build theirs? Am I getting the professional support that I need, uh, the counseling, the recovery help? Am I in a, a small group? Do I have someone challenging me with the word of God? Am I fasting? Am I praying for the Holy Spirit to give me strength and power where I have none? Or am I trying to build my house by myself and overnight? That can't be done. That's what stupid Tim would do. It won't stand the flood. It will come crashing down. You, you will come crashing down if you try to build your house that way. And it won't be funny. It won't be like a funny moment in a sitcom. It'll be a disaster. I want to close this morning with one more quick image to illustrate what Jesus is talking about here. It's a more modern example, but it's still kind of old. A couple months ago, I read historian David McCullough's book, The Great Bridge. I'm binging David McCullough these days. It's a wonderful account of the building of the Brooklyn Bridge, which was built in the late 1800s. It was the largest suspension bridge at the time. The bridge was designed and built by the Roebling family, and thousands of workers um, 
thousands of immigrant workers, uh, many of whom actually died in the construction of the bridge. Now, although building the whole bridge was hard, by far the most difficult part was building the two towers on solid foundation. The bottom of the East River, you might be surprised to know this, it's not like concrete. It's silt and sand and mud and even sewage. To withstand the massive weight of the stone towers and the bridge itself, for as long as they wanted the bridge to last, the Roeblings knew they were going to have to dig deep down to the bedrock. But they didn't know how deep the bedrock was. They didn't have the instruments that we now have to figure out how deep they needed to build. They just had to dig with shovels and pickaxes. They didn't have backhoes or earth movers. Plus, here's what blows my mind, they had to dig under the river. Now, the way they did this was ingenious. Uh, they actually submerged an upside-down chest, a French word for chest, the caisson, an upside-down caisson, which is about half the size of a football field, and it had no bottom, and they submerged it underneath the river, moved it down to the bottom of the river, and then pumped the water out, and then pumped air back in for workers who worked inside the caisson. And the men would enter this chest from a tunnel above, and they would dig the earth out from the floor of the caisson, hauling it out through the top in barrels. Meanwhile, workers on top would stack huge blocks of granite on top of the chest, forcing the caisson deeper and deeper and deeper into the earth. After many years of digging, several tragedies, the caisson reached the bedrock at 44 feet underneath the river on the Brooklyn side and 77 feet underneath the river on the Manhattan side. And then they filled in the caisson with cement and it became the foundation. Now, according to the account, building the rest of the bridge, despite the difficulties, was comparatively much easier compared to setting the foundation. The whole project was completed with exquisite ingenuity and a very expensive commitment to excellence. But it's those well-grounded towers that hold it together. It's the towers that hold the tonnage of platforms stretching the 600 feet across the river. It's the towers which support the massive stretch of cables holding up the street and the train tracks. Roebling knew that the towers needed to be sturdier than the pyramids, and they are. They are amazingly sturdy. It's almost 150 years old, and the Brooklyn Bridge has withstood more than any other bridge in New York has hurricane force winds, the pounding of endless traffic, countless superhero battles. <laughs> in fact, in order to test the strength of the bridge before a single human being even walked across it, P.T. Barnum walked 21 elephants across the bridge. It performed just fine. Every few years or so, the New York Port Authority actually goes back just to see how the Brooklyn Bridge is holding up it only occasionally needs a coat of paint. A well-built bridge can last. A well-built bridge can withstand hurricanes, traffic, elements, elephants, the judgment of God. So can well-built people. Well-built people can withstand anything if their lives are built on bedrock. Cancer, divorce, death, unemployment, judgment. So what's your life built on? 
Do you have a foundation that will last when the storm of God's wrath comes? Is your life built on obedience to the word of a gracious, forgiving God, or is your life built on sand? Is your life built on nothing except your own sin? Are you looking down the barrel at a tool time like disaster? Or is the house you are building one that will stand the test of time and the wrath of God? If it is, if it isn't, it's not too late to start digging. That storm, coming soon. Jesus is furiously trying to get a hold of you to let you know about the storm system heading your way. But it's not here yet. There's still time. If you want to get ready for the storm system, which is coming, Jesus' instructions are simple. Hear his word. And do it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your son Jesus was not the pleasant preacher who we might have preferred. He told scary stories about the end, about storms which are coming and will rip our houses and our lives to shreds. He told these stories because he saw things that we don't see. We're blind. We don't see these things. Jesus saw a future of judgment. Jesus sees the reality of our sin. Jesus sees the hope of heaven. And Jesus knows that you're trying to not trying, you are successfully preparing the earth for what it was always meant to be, a paradise, free of sin, filled with love and peace and truth. And in order to get to that, we've got to endure the storm of your wrath, which is coming. Sin needs to be dealt with, purged, eliminated, punished. That means us. We are the sin in the world. We are the ones who have defaced the goodness of your creation. We are the ones who have picked wars unnecessarily with each other. We are the ones who have enslaved one another and mistreated each other and judged each other and ruined our bodies and aborted our children. That's us. How can anybody not think that we need to be judged? That we don't need to be judged? So thank you for your son who came to warn us of the coming storm. We know that we're not going to be perfect. And that's why we believe in grace. But we also know that The words of Jesus are life and truth. And that he has given us radical ways to live our lives, to love each other, to pray for our enemies, to serve them, to trust in you, to live lives of radical generosity. It's by these simple daily actions that we can build homes, houses, that will last and endure the storm of your wrath. I know we have a lot of seekers and skeptics here at Rooftop 
who are constantly thinking about these things and they're not sure about God, Jesus, or you, or judgment. But we also have a lot of believers here. And I pray that we can build our lives on the truths that you give us to do. Not just listen to, but give us to do. I pray that Rooftop becomes a place, a well-founded church, founded on what Jesus asks us to do in the world. We close our prayer time this morning by praying together the words that your people have prayed together over the centuries, words that are foundational to who we are as your people, the creed that identifies what we think, what we believe, words of the Apostles' Creed, which will appear on the screen behind me if you do not know them. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father, from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting.